It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Hi there, everybody. This is Anya and Kevin from The Murder Sheet. We are currently reporting from the Peru Public Library here in Peru, Indiana. We are trying to get this latest episode out to you as fast as possible, so we apologize if it sounds a little bit more raw, a little bit less rehearsed than usual. Uh, We're currently in a conference room that the library very kindly loaned us, and uh, we're just kind of doing this on the fly. So this is unscripted. Uh, We're just telling you what we saw here today. And we'll explain why it's unscripted and why we're here as we go along. Exactly. My name is Anya Kane. I'm a journalist. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. I'm an attorney. We first connected while looking into the Burger Chef murders, an Indiana cold case. Together, we built a spreadsheet documenting hundreds of cases of restaurant-related homicides. That original spreadsheet gave way to our podcast, The Murder Sheet. 
Now we maintain that same research-centric, investigative approach as we look into all sorts of homicides, including unsolved cases, historical crimes, and, of course, restaurant murders. We don't just chat about the headlines. Our podcast is a platform for our journalism. The Murder Sheet focuses on investigative reporting, thoughtful analysis, thorough research, and in-depth interviews. We're the Murder Sheet. And this is The Delphi Murders, Kegan Klein's October 2022 pretrial conference. So, as I'm sure you heard, today Kagan Klein had a pretrial conference in his criminal case. And, of course, his criminal case is limited to his child sexual abuse material charges. He's not been charged with anything directly related to the Delphi murders. So, this pretrial conference only dealt with the child sexual abuse materials charges. So what exactly is a pretrial conference for people who are not familiar with that term like in the legal system? Uh, a pretrial conference is uh, before the trial, uh, the lawyers get together and talk with each other and with the judge to try to determine basically the rules for how the trial will proceed. You know, is this is this piece of evidence going to be admissible, or is that piece of evidence going to be admissible? So sometimes it can just be very dry, matter of fact about scheduling. Uh, it can also be more dramatic than that in pretrial conferences. That can also be an opportunity if there is a plea deal that happens, which means there won't be a trial. The plea deal is often revealed at a pretrial conference. So important for us to go and cover it. Uh, we had a feeling, I think, from our sources that this was not going to be an explosive pretrial conference, but we tried to report on this case as diligently as possible. So we decided to go up and see for ourselves and report on the ground, essentially. Right. And it's important to note that this pretrial conference did attract some media attention, not just from us. In fact, it attracted so much media attention that the judge in the case, Timothy Sparr, decided to issue a, a pretrial courtroom management and decorum order. And that was basically him giving the rules, not to the lawyers, not to the defendant, but giving rules for the rest of us, the people who are in the media or people who are in the public who are interested in this case and plan to attend He's basically telling us what we are allowed to do and what we're not allowed to do. And you often see these types of orders issued in cases that get a lot of attention. So it's not necessarily a uh, every case is going to get a decorum order. In fact, we sat through a couple of 
other sentencing hearings and pretrial hearings that did not issue, you know, did not issue one for because they're not of public interest necessarily. They're not getting coverage from reporters. But since the Kagan Klein trial is, that's why they released it. Got, it got a decorum order. And what's interesting about it is that he was more flexible than other judges often are. Uh, not too long ago, we attended a sentencing hearing for a, a person convicted of murder. And during that sentencing hearing, we were not, for instance, allowed to take notes on our phone. But uh, this judge does allow such things. It's also, this is getting ahead just a little bit, but I think it's worth noting that in the text of this order, this decorum order, the judge does say that he will be issuing more detailed orders for the actual trial of Kagan Klein. Mm -hmm. And today he elaborated a little bit on what that meant. He indicated that there, were, that there would be orders issued for the trial, as I say, that would go into considerably more detail about what will be allowed and what won't be allowed at the trial. And he even went so far to say is that among the attorneys, they were discussing the possibility of having a day when their reporters could come in and there could be a hearing basically just for them where they get to hear personally some of the practical rules of the courtroom. In other words, that wouldn't be a time for them to talk uh, with each other about the substance of the case from the attorneys. But they would learn, for instance, where here's a room you can go to to file a story or here's a room you can go to to talk to people and things like that. So it was encouraging that he's having the foresight to carefully plan these things ahead of time. Absolutely. So it's not a chaotic media circus situation that everything is sort of orderly and professional. And it certainly indicates that they anticipate that uh, Kagan Klein's trial, though it is not directly linked to the Delphi case, will be getting a lot of media scrutiny. Uh, one question a lot of people have had about this pretrial conference today is, was it about the Delphi murders? And the answer is definitely not. Uh, we feel that the prosecution in this case, which of course is the Miami County Prosecutor's Office, is very much, you know, siloed this case. They have very strong charges against Kagan Klein for a variety of charges related to child sexual abuse materials, possession and distribution. And basically... That's what they're arguing. They're not, I mean, it does not behoove the prosecution in this case or in any case to be sort of stretching and introducing inappropriately connections to another case entirely, which is a Carroll County case, first of all, the, the homicides of Liberty German and Abigail Williams. And um, it, it just would not be an appropriate venue to be linking that too much because basically, as I understand it as a layperson, you know, the trial is about the charges and the charges are about the CSAM and not about Delphi. So you can't just be bringing in every bad thing that Kagan Klein is connected with. That would not be fair. That would be a total violation of what the, you know, the law process is supposed to do. Yes, this was about the child sexual abuse material trial. And it is not about any charges which Kagan Klein does not even face about Delphi. So for... Even though uh, we've been told repeatedly by people behind the scenes that they believe that Kagan Klein has relevant information about what happened at Delphi, 
this was not the time or the place to discuss that. Today was just devoted to the practical matters of what do we need to know to continue planning Kagan Klein's trial. So in terms of how we went about covering this, uh, we got up very early for us, which was uh, 6 a.m., and we sort of hopped in the car and headed up to Peru, Indiana from the Indianapolis area. And basically, uh, you know, it was, you know, on the drive up, we're sort of seeing the sun rise over the cornfields. Um, you know, we, we've come up here quite a lot over time. So I feel like we've kind of gotten to know the place a little bit better every time we come up here. And this time was no different. Uh, the first time I believe we've been in the courthouse in Peru, Indiana, which is, of course, is the seat of Miami County. And, you know, beautiful building, uh, lots of different uh, government administrative offices located therein. Uh, when we kind of headed up to the third floor, that's where we found uh, where we were supposed to be, the circuit court. I think it was one of the prettier courtrooms I've ever been in. I'll just say that. They had all these wooden pews, like a church almost, is a, like a, a red cloth draped behind the judge's bench. So it certainly looked a little bit more like the classical courtroom that you think of when you see, you know, watch movies or television than I think uh, you tend to see in real life. So a uh, very nicely appointed room. But we were... We were the first people there in terms of people who were looking to cover the uh, Keg and Klein case. We were the first people there, period. When we arrived a bit before 8.30 this morning, the courtroom was completely empty. We showed up early because we um, have a tendency to get lost, and I think we just wanted to make sure we were going to get there and, and get seating if, if there were a lot of media outlets there to cover, which there turned out to be. Um, but in addition, we just wanted to kind of get a sense of the judge's style because he will be trying the Keg and Klein case and sometimes getting to see, you know, the, a number of other kind of smaller cases and, and hearings ahead of time can kind of give you a sense of what sort of uh, personality the judge brings to the table, what sort of style. And I think we're definitely interested in seeing that. And since we got here so early, we did actually get a chance to see the judge conduct several other pretrial conferences and even a sentencing hearing. And so that gave us a certain sense of his style. And what did you think of his style? I found him, I found Judge Sparr to be very amiable, definitely very friendly, but forceful, not a pushover, not a bully, um, very much keen to explain everything to uh, people involved, whether that's the, uh, the plaintiff or whether that's the defendant or the other lawyers. He's just kind of very, very trying to be very clear about everything. And I believe you observed one instance while I was off going to Aroma to get a chai latte that you felt was an interesting characterization of the judge and his style. Uh, yes. He was uh, finishing up one of a uh, pretrial conference in another case. And as he was doing this, a member of the audience actually tried to address the judge with some questions. And uh, as you may or may not know, that's simply not done. People who are sitting in the spectator section are not supposed to try to address the judge. It's not a press conference. It's not a press conference. Basically, the only people who have the right to speak to a judge are attorneys or you know parties in a case. So this is this is unheard of. Uh, they tried to ask the judge some questions, and I think I've known and experienced several judges 
who would have responded with that uh, not too well. But uh, Judge Spar was kind and patient, and he said, you know, it's not really my role to take questions from the gallery. He found out from the person what information they were seeking, and he told them uh, where they could go to obtain that information in a friendly way that made the, the person asking the question feel respected, and they left thanking the judge. So the judge treated that person with kindness and patience. And I would also say that in some of the other pretrial conferences that happened, there were uh, technical glitches because some of them uh, took place over Zoom. There were lawyers who were late, and Judge Spar reacted to all of these little uh, blips in the schedule with uh, patience and grace, certainly more patience in, the, in grace than I've seen in a lot of other judges. There you go. So I feel, uh, you know, that kind of brings us nicely to the case of Kagan Klein, which was scheduled for 10 a.m. and I believe did kick up around then. Uh, basically, the judge announced that, you know, he knew that a lot of us there, especially us in the media, we had like a little row um, that was sort of cordoned off for us uh, behind the prosecutor's desk. He knew that a lot of us were there for that and that we would take a short recess and then get into that case. And I guess we'll take a short recess, too, and we'll be back in a moment with uh, what happened. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle. But it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program. Here's how it works. Roe gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Roe Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roco slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roco slash msheet. That's ro.co slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So as we mentioned up top, we had a sense from talking with sources that this pretrial sent, you know, that this pretrial hearing was not going to be an explosive event filled with twists and turns, that it was going to be very much a pro forma hearing. And so that that sort of uh, was where our expectations were coming into this. And that's, I think, what I think our expectations here were met. And another thing we knew before going in is we had been notified that Kagan Klein himself would not be making an appearance in the courtroom. Before today, there had been a lot of speculation and rumors that Kagan Klein himself would be in the courtroom, but he was not, and we got that information last night. So uh, when it came time to sort of set up that Zoom call, Kagan Klein and his attorney, Andrew Aki, appeared on the monitor uh, from, I believe, Miami County Jail, where he is currently incarcerated and has been so for the past two years. Um, and the special camera was also set up just to show the courtroom. So presumably, Kagan Klein got a chance to see all of us sitting in the courtroom, including you and me in the front row. Yes, us with the other media. So he was able to probably see that, you know, definitely there was a turnout that uh, of people who were interested in the case. And of course, we got to see Kagan Klein. Yes. What did he look like? He looked different, I think, than his booking photo. He he certainly still seems to be quite, you know, pale, which I guess being in jail, that, that can happen, not getting as much sunlight. Um, he wore the traditional sort of orange and white striped jail garb. You could just see his shirt, but that was sort of the design. Um, and it's hard to say if he gained weight because we really only saw him uh, from, you know, like the chest up, I would say. Uh but he certainly didn't look like he had lost weight, if that makes sense. Um, and his the most notable change, I thought, his hair looked more closely cropped to his head than I think I'd remembered, at least. And To me, his hairline also looked like it had receded a great bit more yeah. since the last time we'd seen him publicly, which I guess was his booking photo. Yeah, booking photo and uh, the, the 2021 HLN interview. Uh, with, there was some footage run with that. I just thought he looked a little bit different from that. But, I mean, I guess nothing dramatically seemed too different. It still looked like Kagan. He, throughout this, did not speak at all, I believe. I don't believe he said one word in this his his attorney spoke for him which of course is you know often how these things go and he was very very still very silent um not expressive in terms of his you know face or anything like that so he was certainly a presence there but he was a very silent and you know hard to read presence for sure i would say his attorney, Andrew Aki, was, was in the room with him. It's interesting. You could see behind them a what looked like a guard from the jail, just kind of like hovering in the corner. But, um, you know, Aki was this, you know, lawyer, suit, blue tie, 
sort of uh, doing doing the talking for his client here. Which is typical. Which is, yeah, that's not unusual. I think people might expect from the movies that a defendant is going to get up and give a whole speech, but oftentimes they don't testify even during the trial. Well, the reason you hire an attorney is because you want someone who is experienced at speaking in court to speak in court for your behalf. Yeah, why would you want to, you know, so that that's nothing here nor there. It's just maybe people's expectations can be a little different just because they're set by social, you know, like by pop culture. Yeah, if, if I'm going to hire someone to cut my yard, I'm not going to go out there and cut my yard myself. Yeah, <laughs> that's just a reinventing the wheel. Um, and basically, the hearing was, um, it, well, we should say the prosecution state was represented here by Pete Dietrichs, who's one of the assistant prosecutors in Miami County. And I believe he's the lead prosecutor on this Kagan Klein case. He is the lead. He? Yeah, he's the lead prosecutor on this one. And he was accompanied today by Jeff Sinkovics, who is the Miami County prosecutor. Yes. who's not the lead, but was present here at this hearing, at least, to, I guess, support his colleague. And, and I guess his presence also uh, reflects the importance of this case. Yes, yes. It's going to be one that, you know, he previously in the hearings before this had appeared on Zoom. So he was down, I guess, in his office or something sort of talking. And in, in this case, he came up and, and was physically present for what happened. So uh, the the prosecutors were present in the room with us. So was the judge, but the defense and the defendant, Keg and Klein, were on the Zoom monitor. So that's how it sort of all worked together. And the hearing was... It was uh, less than five minutes. Startlingly brief. <laughs> it was not a long, drawn-out meeting. And you kind of got the sense immediately that it was not going to be a long meeting. Basically, it was Judge Spar like, asking questions, and everybody sort of tersely replying, and... That was it. And the questions were scheduling questions. Judge Sparr said, we know that there's another pretrial conference currently scheduled for December 22nd, and the trial is scheduled for this date in January. Do, you, uh, do all the parties intend to keep those dates? And that's an interesting question, because anyone who's followed this case uh, is well aware that Kagan Klein's court hearings have continually been postponed mm-hmm. and delayed. And the last time he had a hearing come up, it was delayed because Mr. Aki said negotiations were in process. And that kind of language makes a lot of people speculate and wonder if there is a plea in the works. And what is interesting is that about the same time Mr. Aki filed the motion with that language about negotiations being in process, that was when we saw some very interesting searches. We saw the search at the Wabash River. We saw the search at the burn pit at the home of Kagan Klein's grandparents. And so a lot of people put two and two together and said to themselves that it sounds as if these negotiations that are in process probably, likely, possibly uh, could be connected to maybe Kagan Klein is giving the authorities information which led to these searches. Uh, Those searches happened uh, over a month ago. And what do we know about the results of those searches? Basically, our understanding is that from the 
uh, burn pit search in Kagan Klein's grandparents' property's backyard was that nothing was found. And that in terms of the water search that was several weeks ongoing uh, in the Wabash River in Peru, Indiana, very near the Klein household, that um, there was no blockbuster find with that. Although that doesn't necessarily mean that nothing was found, but certainly nothing that was, I would say, game-changing is our understanding from talking with sources. Now, to be clear, let's be clear about our opinions on this. I think we were in the camp of there appears to at least be discussions around a plea deal happening. Whether how you know how serious that was, or well, you know the point to which that led, I don't think we can report on because I don't think we have that information confirmed. But I think we we don't. But I think we were very much in the camp of like something is happening. There are discussions ongoing. There are negotiations for sure. I mean that that was pretty plain. That was pretty plain, and was also pretty plain today is that the judge said is the next pretrial conference still on? Is the trial still on? And all parties said yes. Yes. Prosecution said yes emphatically. Defense said yes emphatically. We do not need any additional time. This is a speculative question. Does that make you think that perhaps negotiations are no longer in process? That, uh, that is absolutely my, my conjecture from these facts. Because if, let's see, if negotiations had allowed them to reach a plea deal, then I believe we would have heard about that today because there would be no trial and there'd be no further need to do anything. Now, if if the negotiations were ongoing and they felt that uh, they were fruitful and they needed more time, I would imagine that they would want to now postpone the December 22nd pretrial conference because they would, you know, I mean, that's right around the holidays too. So logistically you're having to bring people together for that. So maybe you want to say, well, actually let's do it in January and let's move the trial back even further. Um, so the fact that neither of those things happened would indicate that, you know, whatever communications were going on, whatever negotiations were in play are no longer in play. Now that's not to say that, you know, that stasis will exist until the trial, things can change. As we know in this case, things can change at any time. All it takes is for, you know, some some additional information to come out or or whatnot. So I don't think we can necessarily say it's all over because we don't have a crystal ball. We can't look at the future. But I think we can pretty solidly conclude from today's hearing that whatever negotiations that Andraki was referring to in his previous filing do not seem to be taking place today. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. We don't want to come out and just sort of put too much emphasis on things we cannot see because I don't feel like we have a lot of information about what exactly is happening right now in terms of negotiations, past or present. Uh, we don't know what the the roadblock was, if there was one, or, or did people's minds change? What happened? Was it the result, was it the result or lack thereof of the search that prompted the breakdown? We don't know. All we can offer is informed speculation. We, we wish we had more solid information to report on this, but we don't. No, but we can draw some intelligent and informed conclusions from things that are very much plain and open and in the public record which is that the trial is on, 
And everybody seems to be saying full steam ahead. The other matter that was discussed during this very brief pretrial conference was uh, the prosecution and the defense arranged to meet for purposes of discovery. Uh, discovery meetings and things of this nature are basically, of course, uh, the prosecution isn't allowed to pull any rabbits out of the hat during a trial. They're not allowed to surprise the defense. They have to lay all their cards down on the table. And so that means that the prosecution has to provide the defense with every bit of information they have about the evidence they have against their client. So that's what this discovery meeting is about. So in addition to that, uh, what do we make of a discovery process in a case that is so very much technical in terms of you have multiple devices with horrific CSAM materials on them? Uh, what, what could that look like? It seems to me that would be a pretty extensive process to get, basically get the defense all of the materials that the prosecution is is looking at. Yeah, it would be, it's a really, really detailed, lengthy process. So much of this case, so much of the evidence in this case involves evidence from digital devices. Uh, my phone has, I, I think, like 74 gig of memory, and that's enough to hold several thousand books several thousand pictures, what have you. So, and there are multiple devices involved in this case. So just try to picture and imagine the sheer number of images of chat transcript pages and so on that exist on these devices that have to be given and shared with the defense so that they can examine them. So Kevin, as an attorney, what are your thoughts on the December pre-trial conference? One, granted that it occurs, and two, um, that it occurs, I guess, then and at all. Because, I mean, from the tone of this one, this October conference, it would indicate that full steam ahead for trial, it's going to take place in December. What would you expect the prosecution and the defense to discuss at that one? Because it seems like so very little was discussed in, the, in this October event. There's always a possibility of pleas being discussed or of charges possibly being dropped. But if the trial's going forward, uh, a final pretrial conference might be an opportunity for... Uh, if you have a jury, for instance, uh, the jury will be read instructions by the judge on how they should think about the charges and how they should arrive at their decisions and so often at a final pretrial conference, you hear uh, both the defense and the prosecution will offer proposed jury instructions. So it's often just things like that, just housekeeping. So um, I guess in terms of, you know, if, if charge, you mentioned the possibility of charges being dropped, what would that look like in this case? He's facing 30 charges. If some of them are dropped, does that mean the case is weak or it's falling apart? No, there, there, there are lots of reasons why charges may be dropped in a case like this. The prosecution has an obligation to only go forward with charges that it can definitively prove every element of. And so often in cases involving child sexual abuse materials, 
the the charges involve images of young people in sexual acts. And if you don't know the identity of the person in those images, it can sometimes be difficult to, for instance, determine what their actual age is. And so often these images will be examined by doctors who will look for secondary sexual characteristics and such and estimate what the person's age is. And so sometimes in instances like that, you will have a prosecutor will make a charge about an image. He thinks involves someone underage, but then a doctor examines it and says, I can't testify that that person is underage. So then that one particular charge will be dropped. So it's possible that a few charges against Kagan Klein may be dropped for technical reasons like that. But I'm confident that the bulk of the charges will remain in place and uh, the evidence against him on those charges appears to be quite strong. And we even recently attended a sentencing hearing where it sounded like a judge almost uh, dropped or kind of uh, vacated a few charges uh, that a person had been convicted on because it kind of butted up against the issue of double jeopardy. It was like, we can't convict him of both of these, essentially. So, I mean, I'm not saying that that's a case in this one. We just don't know going into it. But We just don't know. But we're just talking about possibilities that could happen, um, given that it happens. I guess let's let's turn this around and try to bring it back to the Delphi case a little bit more, because obviously I would say most people are paying attention to this case, horrific as it is, uh, the amount of horrific images that were found on this um, person's phone and devices. Uh, they're paying attention to it because it has been linked to the Delphi case. So it would be helpful to reiterate for everyone why this is, um, why this should be of interest to people who are looking at Delphi. I think, I mean, I'll start. Basically, this guy, Kagan Klein, he uh, was publicly linked to the Anthony Schatz account that police tied to the Delphi case. And in the transcripts that we uncovered from August 2020, back when he was first arrested, they, um, you know, revealed that, you know, detectives said that he had been in contact with Liberty German, you know, up to the day of her murder. So we have... So we have a person with a known interest of a sexual nature in underage females. We have this person having communication with a young girl who was murdered on the very day that this young girl was murdered. And detectives even said that Liberty was very much interested in meeting this man who she believed to be a a teenager closer to her own age um, and that altogether is just, you know, incredibly heartbreaking and disturbing, but kind of is why this case in some ways is tied to um, the Delphi case. So in the meantime, we'll try to kind of stay on top of things. I just want to say that, you know, visiting Peru is always a pleasure because I feel like the people up here are very, very nice. And we've got, we've gotten to meet a few folks here today and very, very nice people. And Thank you all for being so kind to us. Yeah. And a special thanks to the people here at the Peru Library. Yeah, they're terrific. They, But we really appreciate them allowing us to crash here and just kind of record on the fly. Um, and that was very nice of them. And so thanks to them. The, the lady who scheduled us was so nice. And so thanks to her in particular. And I would just say that, you know, this is a really horrific crime and a really horrific thing happening in Peru, but it doesn't take away from the 
you know, it's a very nice town. Lots of nice people up here. Town has a great history. There's a great connections to the circus and also uh, Cole Porter, the great uh, songwriter who uh, Kurt Vonnegut once called the most sophisticated man who ever lived. Cole Porter was born in Peru, Indiana. And every year they have a Cole Porter Festival honoring him, and that's always a great time. We just mentioned that because sometimes, you know, we focus on the negative, obviously. We were a true crime podcast. We're focusing on criminal acts, and, and this is a really horrific one. Whether it's the CSAM trial or it's the brutal murder of two very, very loved girls up in Delphi. But we do want to say that, you know, that something horrible happening doesn't, shouldn't necessarily taint the whole town. And we've, we've certainly talked about a lot of bad things happening in Peru and Delphi, but we've also talked to so many kind and wonderful people from both places. We just want to, you know, kind of give that a shout out as well. Uh, but anyways, thanks so much for listening to us. Thanks for bearing with us uh, in a more uh, sort of live format and, um, you know, keep us posted. Uh, feel free to always send us tips if you hear anything. Thanks very much. Thank you, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to The Murder Sheet. If you have a tip concerning one of the cases we cover, please email us at murdersheet at gmail.com. If you have actionable information about an unsolved crime, please report it to the appropriate authorities. If you're interested in joining our Patreon, that's available at www.patreon.com slash murdersheet. If you want to tip us a bit of money for records requests, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murdersheet. We very much appreciate any support. Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for the murder sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. If you're looking to talk with other listeners about a case we've covered, you can join the Murder Sheet discussion group on Facebook. We mostly focus our time on research and reporting, so we're not on social media much. We do try to check our email account, but we ask for patience as we often receive a lot of messages. Thanks again for listening.